This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for the statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade interview series on designing the future of defense and security. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I had the opportunity to conduct a series of interviews of government executives and thought leaders during this year's Spade conference, hosted in Susterberg, the Netherlands. This year's Spade conference brought together defense, intelligence, and security leaders from Europe and around the world, in dialogue with experts from IBM and industry. This year's theme, Designing for the Future of Defense and Security. Securing the homeland, protecting a nation from terrorists and the instruments of terror, while at the same time fostering a country's economic security through lawful trade and travel, is the single most important responsibility of government. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security has as its mission doing just that, securing the U.S. homeland from varied and ever-evolving threats. Meeting this mission rests on having in place a modernized and innovative technology and information infrastructure. What are the IT strategic priorities for DHS? How is it working to modernize its IT infrastructure? And how is DHS improving network connectivity and resilience while maturing its cybersecurity posture. We explore these questions and more with Dr. John Zingardi, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, who joined me and my co-host from IBM, Don Fenhagen, from the Spade Conference for an insightful and in-depth discussion. Doctor, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Great. It's glad to be here. Being interviewed in the Netherlands is something different for me, but I'm glad to do it. That's great. Don, as always, welcome. Ah, great to be here. So, uh, John, what is the mission of your office, the Office of the Chief Information Officer at DHS, and how is it organized, and how does it support the overall mission of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security? Thanks for asking. So, as the CIO of DHS, I'm responsible for delivering IT mission capability to the organization whether it be HQ, headquarters, or across the components. So I've laid out uh, my mission uh, focus in terms of protect, perform, and connect, right? If I can't connect you, I'm failing, right? If I can't protect what I'm connecting, I've failed again. So that's about security. So one of them is how do I efficiently connect the entire enterprise and enable the mission accomplishment through the movement of data or information across the network. I have to protect that. It's a government network, and what we do is something of interest to our enemies, and it needs to be protected appropriately for that. But most importantly, we need to perform, 
And what I mean by performance is, if you've ever worked in IT, it is an operational environment. Every day requires you to be on your game to make sure that the capability you need to deliver to the people who need to do the mission is being delivered. If a new need for a capability springs up on the border, we have to be able to support that quickly. We have to make sure that what we delivered can connect, and then we have to make sure that what's been connected can be secured. Organizationally, my organization breaks down several ways. I have an operational component. That's probably my largest component. I have a security component. That's probably my second largest one. I have a component within mine that delivers applications, right, and develops our path to the cloud, looking at how we organize to make better use of our data that we have. And DHS has a lot of data. I have another organization that deals with my budget. At the end of the day, uh, if you don't know where your money is, you can't do any of the protect, perform, or connect functions. Money is the oil or gasoline that makes the engine go. I have another organization that focuses on where the future of technology is going to be as my chief technical officer. So things like network modernization and how we're going to roll out uh, use of the, the GSA EIS contract, the Enterprise Information Services contract that the Government Services Administration is putting out. How are we going to best use that to satisfy the mission of all of DHS? The last piece of my organization is our organization that deals with what we call 508 compliance. So you're hearing compared or you have some visual problems. How do we make sure that when those folks get on our systems, whether it be for training or use of the network, that we can help them through with their hearing impairment or their visual impairment? That's the scope of my organization. So you ask how I help the components. My job is to make sure that the components are enabled to do their mission. So if I'm getting in the way, I need to get out of their way. If they need help with something, I need to make sure that my staff is engaging with them appropriately to get them where they need to be. So my job is to help them. It's their job is not to help me. I'm here to help them with their mission. Yeah, so you, um, I guess you've been at DHS for maybe, I don't know, close to two years now? Close to two years. And uh, I guess you spent a lot of your career uh, over in other parts of the government, and especially the uh, Department of Defense and the Navy. Uh, so what's your perspective? What are the top three, you know, two years in, top three challenges that you've seen um, operating as the CIO of DHS? And how, how are you working to address some of those challenges? You know, when I go back to those three things I talked about, protection, performance, and connection, for me, the number one thing is security. Security breaks down a couple different ways. So one, you got to make sure you have a team there that's fully trained and capable of doing the job. So we have been spending a lot of time lately looking at how we train those folks, and we're tying it back to something called cyber retention incentive pay. So that's looking at each of the billets that my cybersecurity folks are playing in, looking at the duties they perform and their performance, and then making sure they get the appropriate training, and then incentivizing them with incentive pay to make sure that they continue down that track. That is critically important on the security side, but also the security side requires us looking at how we're going forward in the future, right? So you have a foundation of people who are trained and incentivized to go forward, but the future is different. And I was on a panel where we talked about 5G. 5G really changes the playing field. I mean, perimeters are probably not the thing of the future. It's a thing of the past. And how do I shape how we approach our ability to secure the network into the future. So we're spending a lot of time looking at things like zero trust, 
identity, and how we roll those things out across the enterprise and shape what we're doing. But it also requires an attitudinal change, right? It's very easy for people in the security business to go, I do compliance. I read NIST. I know what NIST says. I'm going to check the block. But it's another thing to say, I understand a threat, and I understand a threat can evolve and change, and I understand risk, and I'm going to manage those things. And there's another piece to that. How do you convey that sense up your chain of command? If you were to read an authority to operate document that I sign when the system gets on our network, you'd probably go, I don't understand it if you were a layman. And that's probably true of many of the people in leadership. So how do you convey to leadership the mission impact of a system when it goes down? What does it mean in layman's terms? And that's not to be insulting. That's just to, to put it in the right terms. If this system goes down, you can't do commerce here. That'd be an important thing, and most people would grasp that if they're not IT experts. Speed is a problem. And what I mean by speed is how quickly can we get things out there to people? And that's a function of the ability of your people to leverage contracts, to leverage money, and to get things built out on the network. Speed is really important because the demand signal today is so much different than I think the demand signal of 10 or 15 years ago. Built into that speed thing is something that I think is positive within government. 10, 15 years ago, when I was working in business systems, you had a great reluctance to change. I'm talking about change management here, about how you look at your processes. Today, people have come a great distance. They recognize that, hey, if I'm going to get this new system, this new capability, I'm not going to customize it. I'm going to make some configuration changes, but i got to change how I do my business processes. So getting those cultural pieces in place that help with speeding things along is very important. That also plays to security. But here's one that I think is very important, and it plays to the other two, technical acumen. So... The marketplace for the people I hire is very, very competitive. And I cannot, in the government, match salaries of commercial industry for some of these people, whether they're cybersecurity experts, whether they're data scientists, whether they're people who are expert in the cloud. I just can't match it. And we can appeal to people based on their patriotism. We can appeal to people based upon the interest of the mission that, hey, it's a very complex, it's a challenging mission. You'll feel rewarded when you solve a difficult problem. But still, at the base here is getting those highly technical people on board so we can achieve what we want to achieve. Technical forms the basis of what we do every day. We have to have those skills on board. So those are my three biggest focus problems, focus areas or problems that I deal with. Those are, those are big, big problems and, uh, yeah, pretty interesting. I mean, and so as you think about those, I mean, when you came in, you know, you've had some time to think about your, your role what really, you know, took you back when you came into the department? You know, what surprised you the most? Something you didn't know before you got there, and now you're like, wow, this is very different than I expected. So to say DHS and DOD are different would be an understatement. So DOD as an organization has been around for a very long time. And any organization that's been around for a very long time has many established processes. And you sort of know how you're going to do something. I spent a lot of time in the acquisition community, and the 5000 series really lays out how you're going to acquire a system. It's very prescriptive, in a sense. It doesn't mean that DOD doesn't work to shape things or, or make things a little bit easier, but there's still a lot of history. When you roll over to DHS and you look at our acquisition review board process, it is much more flexible. 
And a lot of that I attribute to the organization being younger and the processes not having been in place for as long of a time. So the first thing that really caught me off guard was how quickly we'd be willing to tailor a process and be more nimble. That's a big difference, and it caught me a little off guard to your point, Don. But, hey, I adjusted. Well, you mentioned the DOD, uh, John. So would you tell us a little bit more about your career path, what's brought you to this particular role as the CIO of uh, DHS? Good luck, I guess, being in the right place at the right time. Um, I, I could not draw a line between the day I left college and headed off to the Navy to fly planes and where I am right now. Um, the confluence of events are too uh, sporadic and uh, uh, unbelievable to, to match that. So, look, I went into the Navy to fly planes. Uh, I come from a town in Pennsylvania called Scranton. Good people, great town, but when I was leaving there, getting out of college, no opportunity. It was tough times. And, you know, the Reagan buildup was occurring, and there was a, they were looking at building up a bigger Navy. And uh, flying planes looked like a lot of fun, right? It looked like a lot more fun than being an accountant, which was what I was trained to do. So going from training to be an accountant to flying planes. So get into the Navy, end up flying P3s, saw a lot of the world, um, got a subspecialty in financial management, and along the way a master's in finance and a PhD. Uh, so kind of a different path. Uh, but if you've ever been around the military, you know we move a lot and just got to a point in my career after command that, hey, enough's enough. And my wife and I made the decision to go no further. Navy was wonderful and kind enough to ask me back as a senior executive. And you know, I moved into the N6 organization. So I went into IT from a non-IT background. Now, that's not to say that I didn't understand the fundamentals of IT, having flown planes and worked with complicated systems. But, you know, I went there with the task of, hey, let's see what we can do to improve the IT budget. Then I got involved in the uh, merger, which we called uh, N2 and N6. That was the merger of the intelligence community and the networking community with the UAV pieces, electronic warfare pieces, and some other pieces. And it was called information dominance. And I guess, gosh, that's probably about nine, ten years ago. And I was one of the senior advisors to pull that together, and I worked there for a couple of years. And then uh, along the way, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for C4I, IO, and Space, that job opened up, and uh, Secretary Sean Stackley was kind enough to make me one of his dazens. And then luck would have it, I got asked to go up to DOD to be the principal deputy of DOD CIO and then later acting DOD CIO. And eventually uh, got a call from the deputy at DHS to go be their CIO. So I guess that's a long answer, but the connections are, for me, they were totally unpredictable. That's a good story. Thanks. Um, you know, I think you shared some of the challenges that you've seen at the department, you know, especially some of the people challenges and attracting top talent, um, you know, in a very competitive environment, especially in Washington right now. Um, that takes leadership. What are some of the, you know, how do you lead in this organization? How do you lead your people? How do you draw talent? And, uh, you know, what are some of the guiding principles behind your, your leadership style? So the Navy has a, a motto. It's called honor, courage, and commitment. And, uh, you know, I, I bought into that a, a long, long, long time ago. Um, you know, so if you really think about it, um, you know, you need to be committed to what you do every day. You have to have courage to approach even the most difficult tasks. 
And, and what I mean by courage is, you know, it's the ability to speak to people senior to you and, and, and describe in ways the things that are going wrong and that need to be fixed, right? It takes courage to do executive jobs. And you have to have honor. What I mean by honor is you have to have the ability to maintain your integrity in the environment. So leadership at the executive level is is different than, in my mind, leadership at the, uh, you know, in a plane or a squadron level. Uh, how do you make sure that you're large organization understands where you're moving, why you're moving that way, and why you're executing things. is It's a hard challenge to make sure that everyone gets on that message. So when you talk about leadership, it has to be based on honor, courage, and commitment, right? The honesty and integrity piece. It has to be based in you not being afraid to go in there and put some dirt under your fingers to make sure that things are being executed. But it also requires thinking a little bit like an executive and realizing where you need to spend your time, right? So you only have a certain amount of time every day. And as you look at your problems, you have to decide where am I going to put my emphasis? So if your problem list has 100 items on it and you're attacking 100 problems every day, you're going to fail. You've got to limit yourself in the number of problems you attack. And you have to empower your folks below you to attack other problems. So leadership is about displaying the right characteristics, but it's also about delegation and understanding the things that you need to impact personally and the things that you have to allow others to impact themselves. You have to be able to delegate. What are the IT strategic priorities for DHS? We'll ask Dr. John Zingardi, Chief Information Officer at DHS, when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. How is the Port of Rotterdam pursuing its digital transformation strategy? What exactly is a digital twin? How can the use of digital twins be applied to other government agencies and mission areas? Michael Keegan explores these questions and more with Erwin Raidmaker, Program Manager with the Port of Rotterdam Authority, and his co-host, Sriram Visvanthanen, IBM Global Managing Director for Government, Healthcare, and Life Sciences from the SPADE Conference for an insightful and in-depth discussion. The Business of Government Hour every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade interview series on designing the future of defense and security. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Dr. John Zingardi, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. My co-host from IBM is Don Van Hagen. I understand you just released your... Uh, your IT strategic plan. Well, not just, but recently released it. And I'd like to delve a little deeper into that. You kind of alluded to it earlier, uh, but could you tell us more about the plan, your strategic vision, the core tenets of IT at DHS, and what are your priorities? So let's start with priorities. Um, When I came to DHS, uh, it was made clear to me my priorities were to modernize the network, secure the network, and deliver capability. And, and that's what we're going to do, right? It's really that simple. Um, so we need to modernize the network, 
right? And that means that I have to take advantage of the GSA, ESA contract vehicle to begin that modernization. And, and we are stepping out on that. We're at the point now where I think we've reached agreement across all the components on what it will entail. But that is fundamentally important to how we move forward with our network and delivering new capability at lower cost. It's fundamental in how I'm going to deliver security. Inherent in that vehicle is how I'm going to get to zero trust, how I'm going to modernize the network, get the software-defined networking, and deliver mobile capability. Priority number one is getting EIS out the door on the street and award it. Priority number two is in the security field. We talked early on when I got here about how we could go about optimizing our SOCs, security operations centers. And we spent a lot of time over the last 8 to 12 months developing a plan. Now, there's a couple ways you can approach something like that. You could do a top-down, I'm going to force it down your throat kind of thing, or you could do sort of a bottom-up approach. So we have approached it from a bottom-up, crawl, walk, run approach. We have delegated uh, aspects of the optimization problem to the component CISOs. Uh, the Customs and Border Protection CISO has the lead for tools, and this is about, hey, what are the tools that we want to have on our network? This means we're going to work with the continuous diagnostics modernization program out of CISA. We're going to integrate that, but how do I build a dashboard that allows the secretary and the component heads to get visibility over the network? The other piece is policy and procedures. So the ICE, CISO, has lead in that particular area to figure out what are the standard policies and procedures that we need to roll out. Now, across those two areas, tools and policies and procedures, we have to recognize that components can have differences in their mission, and we need to capture those unique aspects to make sure that we don't make it harder for them to achieve it, but we allow room for them to get where they need to be. So between those two pieces, it's about getting the commonality and helping develop a better approach to security. The last piece in the Secret Services so has the lead here is how do we get to more commonality in our contracting? Wouldn't it be nice, it would actually be great, if we all used one contract vehicle for our security operations center? That would be a big deal. And the other priority I'm working on is data. We talk a lot about data. There's a lot of data in DHS. So one of the tasks that I received last fall was to look at and lead a winter study about the instantiation of a, a chief data officer. So we've completed the study. We also need to comply with the law that says establish a CDO. But what does that CDO look like? Is it a policy CDO? Is it a CDO with a lot of authority? What is it? And that's the problem we're wrestling with now. What is it? And then when you develop what it is, that takes you on to the next step. We've laid out an intelligent automation strategy that we're going to be putting out soon that deals with robotic process automation, ML, and AI. We're not going to jump immediately to AI. We'd probably fail. But how do you start small and then build your way up to AI? And the focus area is not on the mission initially. It's going to be on business systems. Cut your teeth on your financial system. Cut your teeth on your HR system or your contracting system to show that, yes, indeed, we could roll out RPA and make it effective and help you achieve your mission less costly with fewer individuals and maybe even faster. So if you were to look at priorities, those would be the three. And gosh, I can't forget cloud and data center consolidation, right? Getting to the cloud is important for us. It helps us with our mission. It enhances mobility. We've got to make sure that the right security is in place when we do it. I need to make sure that I reduce our data center footprint as much as possible. 
really gets down the cost and mission, and that's what I've got to ensure. Now, now let's be clear. My strategy on cloud has always been federated hybrid, right? We're not going to pick just one. We're going to go with whatever makes sense. And the judging factors are cost, schedule, and performance, right? What's the capability I get? What cost did I get it at? And how quickly can I deliver it? You, you may have touched on this already or kind of said as much as you're going to say at this point, but... Um, you know, IT modernization, we talked about it at this conference. Um, you know, it's one of the uh, Trump administration's priorities. They talked about the new AI focus um, and other modernization focuses that are out there, uh, probably on your roadmap and all federal CIOs roadmap. Cloud's a big push for you. Where where are you on the cloud uh, move? You know, is, is, is DHS, how far away are you? Or is, it, is that part of EIS to move to the cloud? And um, where do you see that, you know, in the next year or two? As you start so, closing data so, centers. So, Donna, I wish I brought all my numbers on how much stuff we have moved to the cloud. I, I don't have them at my fingertips, but I'm glad to share them with you later. Uh, as, as we were consolidating out of two zones down in uh, Data Center 1 in Stennis, Mississippi, we made a significant move to the cloud. Uh, I don't have the exact number of systems and applications, but I believe it was over 100 that we moved. So some of that was split between decommissionings and actually moving the systems out there. So we've been pretty aggressive as a department and, you know, getting out to the cloud. Um, we have within the IS2 organization uh, that Donna Roy runs, we have developed and we are maturing our cloud factory approach. We're within about a month of having our authority to operate out there, I knocked on wood because ATOs are always a challenge. But getting that ATO in place is really important. The cloud factory's purpose is to take a system or application that is in, currently in a data center and then beginning to move it to the cloud. And that includes the modernization piece, the virtualization piece, getting it out there. So I need that for myself. I need that for headquarters to help accelerate me. I also need it for some of the smaller components who might need help. The more mature components, the larger components like Customs and Border or ICE or TSA have already blazed this trail and they're moving out very smartly. The other piece that I'm concerned about as we look at the cloud is my network and how I enable the connections to the cloud service providers. So we're looking at some things called a, a virtual tick, trusted internet connection, building it out in a, a point of presence out there and Equinex, but building it out so we can take latency out of the network, take complexity out of the network, and make it easier for people to bundle onto an express route and get there. So fewer connections, but maintaining geographic and vendor diversity so we have backup in case something goes bad, but bundling it in such a way that we allow people to save money and we create a more efficient path. So when you talk about cloud, it's about, yeah, we're already moving there, two, we're building out the structure to help people move there. And three, I'm trying to make it simpler in terms of both security and the actual operational connections at the point of presence for our folks to get there. I think those are the main ways we're approaching it, but we are being very aggressive. And probably lastly, at the end of the day, we're going to need a contract vehicle that helps us get there. That's one of the demand signals I'm getting from the components. We're still working through that, but we need to finalize what we're looking at and begin to roll that out. Maybe that gets to the next piece of the cloud factory. Sounds like something that's going to be like this uh, this enabling organization that holds people's hands to help them figure out the right next steps or however you want to want to phrase that. But what are some of the challenges you think are going to come you know through this process? What are some of the biggest hurdles you think you're going to have to jump over? I think the biggest hurdle that we're going to have to jump over 
is the training piece, right? And that seems to be the biggest ask when you when you go around and talk to folks. How do we ensure that there are the experts there? Don, you said it well. Uh, it, it's a little bit of a hand-holding thing. So you develop the, the core skills that get you get your organization the ability to move to the cloud. So that's kind of the right way of framing it. Cloud Factory is kind of like your mom when you were a young kid, taking your hand as you walk across the street. I'd like to talk about, you know, there are some in the uh, federal CIO community that believe IT modernization is not enough. And rather, they sim- it's simply modernizing their systems. Agencies need to create a, a dynamic IT environment that can evolve with requirements as they evolve. Um, what are the implications of a digital transformation down the road? What do you see, John? Um, so we talk a lot about digitization. And so I got to back up a little bit. So I've, I've been around this for a long time. And, and every year there's a shiny silver <laughs> ball that's rolling down the highway and, and people chase after it. Um, we have to be careful in the things we pick and go after. Uh, modernization is important, but I tend to look at it in terms of it's about the life cycle, right? If we don't pay attention to our modernization over a period of time, we're going to get stuck with systems that are no longer supported. So you'll hear me talk about things like cyber hygiene, right? Hey, look, at if you're, you're on an old, unsupported version of an operating system, dang it, why are you there, right? That's important. That's modernization, and it's cybersecurity at its most fundamental and that's less about the shiny ball. Um, I remember working on uh, UAVs a long time ago, and we were talking about autonomy. Heck, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal just this weekend uh, on autonomy asking Elon Musk, when do you think we'll have autonomy for cars? And that was in 2014. He said, 2019, are we there? So you have to be very careful when you approach all these ideas. So I will always come back to the foundation. You need to make sure you built out a firm foundation. You need to make sure you have the technical acumen to understand what you're going after and that it's achievable. So you asked a little bit about digitization. That's important. We are not digitized. But we've done a very good job in DHS of reducing the number of systems that are in finance, that are in our HR. That's critical stuff, and that's modernization at its core, isn't it, right? If you could reduce the number of systems you have there, and those systems are modernized, and those systems are funded for sustainment, that's a big deal. And that protects you, that delivers capability, that does everything I said in the beginning about protect, perform, and connect. That's great. Yeah, I think um, another little bit, and you touched it on cyber a bit. What are some of the biggest lessons learned that you've gleaned from some of the breaches that have happened recently, you know, both in the public sector and the private sector. I know there's a lot going on, not far from DC. Um, you know, what kind of what kind of things are happening that you know kind of hit home for you and, and your workforce? Uh, you know, uh, to me, um, the most important thing you can do is cyber hygiene. I mean, it's simple, generic house cleaning, right? Keeping that keeps your network in order. Uh, when you look across vulnerabilities, you don't want to leave problems, bugs, trapdoors, whatever you want to call that vulnerability, to exist. You need to patch, and you need to stay on that sort of thing. You need to make sure that you've put in place two-factor authentication so you have some means of assuring that the person you're talking about or try to access data on your network is the person you say it is. It's very important to lay in those aspects early on to be very clear that you're protecting your network. Uh, when, you, when you look at 
uh, continuous monitoring and getting to a future where you've built in the procedures and policies and when you get it on your network, you're providing the support and watching that system through its entire life cycle. So it's a soup to nuts kind of thing. You want to make sure that you bake in cyber at the beginning. So we're spending time right now going back and looking at our authority to operate process to make sure that we're putting in the threat rather than compliance, that we're assessing it based upon risk, and we're building it in early. So what's the threat? What's the risk? How do I mitigate it? And making sure those decisions are happening early on, that we're involved in thinking it through, building it in early. And then how do you communicate that up your, your leadership chain? You know, make sure that your leadership understands the risk of you taking this you know, application or system on your network that has a vulnerability and understanding that, hey, if this is compromised, it means this. So build it in early, then maintain it with cyber hygiene. Make sure that you're always on top of it. Continuous monitoring is key to it. We have to look at our identity system. We have to look at zero trust as we move to the future. We talked earlier today about how 5G, the Internet of Things, is going to change things. Mobility was the first thing that started to shift how we look at our network. Perimeter is no longer relevant as we move to the future. So how do I shift going to that future? That's zero trust and identity. We've got to start getting our arms around it. So it is that soup to nuts perspective from the day we look at something to how we look at how that thing goes through its life cycle. How is the U.S. Department of Homeland Security working to modernize its IT infrastructure? We'll ask its CIO, Dr. John Zingardi, when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. How is the Port of Rotterdam pursuing its digital transformation strategy? What exactly is a digital twin? How can the use of digital twins be applied to other government agencies and mission areas? Michael Keegan explores these questions and more with Erwin Raidmaker, Program Manager with the Port of Rotterdam Authority, and his co-host, Sriram Visvanthanen, IBM Global Managing Director for Government, Healthcare, and Life Sciences from the SPADE Conference for an insightful and in-depth discussion. The Business of Government Hour every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade interview series on designing the future of defense and security. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Dr. John Zingardi, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. My co-host from IBM is Don Van Hagen. 
I know from your new strategic plan, John, that exceeding customer expectations is a key priority. And I'd like to, you kind of alluded to it in, in the previous segment, but uh, I'd like to talk more about your efforts in this area. How do you anticipate the technology needs of your customers, the components, and how do you work with them to identify better ways to use technology to change how they achieve their missions? Well, it's, it's really simple. You talk to them. Yeah. I mean, they're going to tell you what they want, right? And my job is the, is the DHS CIO is to listen to them. So we talked earlier about my priorities being the EIS, fair opportunity, getting that contract on the street. Every component has a different need. How do I make sure that their needs are expressed in that fair opportunity that goes on the street? That is not an easy lift. And from their point of view, every component wants to make sure that their special needs are covered that they're valid and they're recognized. That requires a lot of meetings, a lot of talking to people to make sure that their concerns are expressed and that we can capture them in a way that's appropriate for contract language, right? That's about the customer, right? My component CIOs are one form of my customer. Another form of my customer is everyone in HQ or someone who uses uh, a desktop or a mobile device. So let's look at something not so simple, but moving from the Nebraska area complex. That was where our headquarters was near American University down to St. Elizabeth's. We moved, I think, 940 people. Don't hold me to the number. From there in four phases. The key in that is customer experience, right? You know there's going to be problems, right? And we, we had some problems. Things like, hey, the two monitors you put on my desk were too big. Or, hey, my phone didn't work the first day. But Here's the key thing. We went from two skiffs to 14 skiffs. They worked. We worked through those technical problems. We moved unclass and secure networks. They worked, right? We got all the phones in place. And then the day of the move happened for each one of those phases, we had people there. We had them wearing green coats. So if you had a problem, you went looking for a person in a green coat, and they would come and solve your problem, right? But none of the problems were massive. They were smaller problems. Hey, how does this phone work? Or, hey, I'm not quite connected up here. Can you help me? So the customer expectation and experience when they go through something like that is critically important. How do you imbue it into your organization is what we want it to do. So, one, listen to your customers. Two, deliver to your customers. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to get into more of the financing, <laughs> the cost uh, capital investment process. Technical diversity leads to uh, you know higher maintenance costs, John, and uh, as you well know. How or have you in the two years you've been CIO, have you looked to strengthen the IT capital investment uh, process within the department? So we, we, we have taken steps to look at how we invest. All right, so EIS is one step, but when I got there, I started... Oh, heck, you know, my background's finance. I'm backing up a little. My background is finance. I spent a lot of time in Navy doing money. Um, and I, you know, heard me say it. Money is the lubrication that makes it work. Uh, the first three months I got to DHS, I spent that time going through my budget. And, and the key thing that I wanted to do, and I'm still working on, is how do I transform my budget into a capabilities-based view that I understand over a period of years that the dollars invested here deliver the capability I want it. And you've heard me talk a lot about life cycle sustainment and how do I build in life cycle sustainment. The other piece that you hinted at is, hey, if you have a lot of different things out there, 
it costs you money to maintain a lot of different things out there. So we've taken the time to begin, hey, how can we think, make things less complicated and clean it up? So it's about financial controls. It's about establishing the right pathways for things. It's about making sure sustainment's there and getting to new versions. So everyone's rolling out Win 10. We have to keep three versions of Win 10 active at any time. That's what everyone has to do. We have to be prepared every six to nine months to move to the next version. That's a big shift in view. That is more than just patching. That is more than other operating systems in the past. Have to build into our organization a mindset that knows, hey, it's a conveyor belt. There's going to be a new version that comes out. We're going to have to make sure all our application and networks can handle it. We have to build in that view because the IT future is different. All that also has to be funded and planned for. It's complicated. You know, we live in a very mobile world now. We just finished a little panel on 5G a minute ago. Um, what are you doing? I mean, it does seem like that you don't hear people talking quite a, about mobility the same way as we did two or three years ago anymore. People just have their phones. But what are you doing to expand mobility in the DHS enterprise um, and get good apps out to the field? How's that, how's that landscape shifting? All right. So, so you got two topics in there, Don. I'm going to go for 5G first, and I'll come back to the other one. And if I forget, remind sure. me. Um, so, so look, at, I, I don't know what future applications are going to be rolled out in 5G. And I'm not going to predict the future right now and what might be coming. Where's that killer app that we talk about that's going to drive it? I know the 5G is coming. I know it's a big pipe. It's got low latency. It's going to bring a lot of capability that people are going to want to take advantage of. My responsibility is making sure I can enable that. And the first thing on that is understanding the changes that 5G is going to bring, right? I don't think perimeter defense is the future. I've got to be thinking about how I change things. And we've begun the conversation about identity and zero trust. How are we going to move to a new security mindset that enables 5G to come in with the fewest amount of perturbations? And we're thinking that through it. We're spending time on it. We're engaging the components of to make sure we approach it in a way that's sensitive to their mission, but yet enables what might be coming in the future. Okay, when you start talking about applications, um, probably the most fundamental thing we have done is we've moved to a, a cloud-based office productivity system. And as part of that, we've rolled it out, it's there. Okay, so now how do we take advantage of the, few, the, the capabilities that it will provide us? And I think once people get a taste of what it can do in terms of collaboration and, and document control and, and other features, they'll want more of it. So we're starting with our licensing strategy to make sure we understand what it is we need to buy to get to that capability. That's step one. But once we get that out there, we've got to look at all the other things that are out there that need to enable it. So what is our portal environment that will enable us moving that out there? And how do I modernize to it? We're giving that a lot of thought right now because there's a strong demand signal for those kinds of things in a very mobile environment. People want to work wherever they are, be it the office or their house or wherever. We've got to maintain security wherever we go, and we shouldn't be using Wi-Fi in a local coffee shop when you're on a government network. But the point I'm getting at is we need to make sure that we're looking to the future. And that office productivity suite, to me, is the thing that offers us the biggest bang for the buck. There's a lot of other applications out there that will make a difference, but I don't think anything will make as big of a difference as that in our future. You talked a little bit about the chief data officer, and 
you know, that with data comes comes the opportunity to do analytics. How do you see analytics uh, playing in your in your business? Whether it's you know using the data to improve the the CIO shop or to provide better services to your 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 clients, your your people. Yeah, like I talked earlier, our focus is initially going to be on the business side, um, and, and that's where I've laid out our intelligent automation strategy. It's like, how do I integrate, like I said, RPA into the financial systems to take those repetitive processes that people don't want to work on and, and extract those out and help them free up people for higher-end work? Same thing could be applied for HR or um, the contracting process. So that's where we're going to be pushing it downstream. Um, that is not necessarily related to uh, CDO as an enterprise construct. It's more as how we would integrate it within HQ. You know, uh, John, you've mentioned, we've talked a lot about 5G uh, technology, its emergence. Um, I, I don't want you to predict the future, but I, I'd be interested because I think you're, you're, you were talking about your CTO maybe earlier on. Um, what other emerging technologies do you see uh, offer promise for you achieving the priorities that you have? So we, we, we talked about a whole bunch here without getting into product names. 5G is at the top of the list. We talked about cloud. That's, a, that's another technology. So you have to be careful that you don't try to do too many things. So you become um, a trickster at all and a master of none, right? So we're focused on the things that are going to deliver the most capability. So 5G's downstream. I got a plan for how I'm going to handle it when it comes. Cloud is here. I have to enable it. Modernization of the technology I have out there is really important. One thing I'm focused on right now is how do I deliver secure mobile communications? So we are working with DISA. We've, um, we've procured, I don't know if that's the right word, or provisioned a few devices at the secret and top secret level that we can provide to senior folks within DHS. That's basic stuff, but it's important that we, we roll out the capability, right? Ensuring that our senior leaders have the ability to talk, communicate securely is critically important. So we're very focused on that. Where is that going in the future? We're paying very close attention to that and watching the developments of, that we're seeing in industry, because I think there's a great potential in the future to change where we are and deliver that capability more rapidly. So we'll see where that goes. But mobility is at the top of the list. That's the biggest demand signal I have. What does the future hold for information technology at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security? We will ask its CIO, Dr. John Zingardi, when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. 
is the Port of Rotterdam pursuing its digital transformation strategy? What exactly is a digital twin? How can the use of digital twins be applied to other government agencies and mission areas? Michael Keegan explores these questions and more with Erwin Raidmaker, Program Manager with the Port of Rotterdam Authority, and his co-host, Sriram Visvanthanen, IBM Global Managing Director for Government, Healthcare, and Life Sciences from the SPADE Conference for an insightful and in-depth discussion. The Business of Government Hour every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade Interview Series on designing the future of defense and security. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Dr. John Zingardi, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. My co-host from IBM is Don Van Hagen. You talked about, you know, enabling these new capabilities. I think one of the things that you're trying to do in your group is, is you know, enable your people, empower your people to, to think outside the box and change, change the paradigms um, in DHS. And, you know, by doing that, you maybe you're going to attract a different workforce and, you know, some new ideas some new thinking. Um, what are some of the 21st century kind of strategies that you're you're looking to to help change the thinking within DHS? Is there anything that you th- you're doing that's a little bit different than before? Yeah, I I, uh, I want to talk a little bit about attracting people first because you know I, I did mention earlier on that you don't do anything without the without money. That's your gasoline. Uh, people are your engine. Right. And uh, how do we hire the workforce of the future? How do we train the workforce of the future? So um, the Cyber Talent Management System, CTMS, that Angie Bailey in uh, our HR, Chico, uh, laid out is critical. We hope to hire the first person through that system. So let's think a little bit about it. If you look back at the HR system in our government, the first view on it was back in Calvin Coolidge's day. The second time it was looked at was in Harry S. Truman's day. So I I don't know how you slice things, but that system's been around for a long time. It goes back to tubes and transistors and typewriters, and now we're in iPads, we're talking about 5G. Those things are mutually exclusive. So how do we create a system that's more flexible, that allows us to bring on the talent we need more quickly. Uh, for those of people out there in the audience who've probably applied for a job on USA Jobs, you know how hard it can be to get involved or through the government hiring process. So CTMS is a way that we're hoping will break through some of those walls and let us get at that talent more quickly. And there's also a compensation piece to it. So internships, how do we engage with the colleges and organizations out there to get young people um, If you just think about D.C., and I'm not limiting myself to D.C., but if you walk to my alma mater for my Ph.D., George Mason University, they have a lot of folks there that are children of government employees or parents who've been in the military. They have a a natural sense maybe to serve their government. How do I attract those kinds of people that are in a computer science program or an engineering program or an IT program to get them to come in? So internships, get them in, get them interested. Our mission's interesting. They will find a lot of reward from it, right? So when you think about bringing people in, that's important. Earlier in the conversation, I talked about cyber retention incentive pay. How do I incentivize and train the people to get them to the next level? So part of that is we're going to require certain certifications for them to get this. 
pay, this incentive pay. I'm paying for their training. I'm going to help them maintain their training. That's key. So when I change the training because the situation changed, they have to be willing to go get that training if they want to retain the incentive pay, right? Follows logically. Money's always been a great incentivizer for people. I tend to be incentivized by it. So when you think about that, how do you bring in new think? Well, you've got to be able to hire the people. I think you want to bring in some younger people through internships that have skills. But you also got to take the people you got and make sure that they can still do what you need them to do. Now, for me, I always say this, that bringing in the right technical acumen is what I need. We're pretty much as-a-service kind of organization. And that means that we have to monitor what the vendors are delivering. And if you don't have the technical acumen and the up-to-date skills to go, hey, this is exactly what we want, or no, that's not what we want, you're probably going to be on the wrong side of the equation. So we have to make sure that we're trained and have the right people there that could judge that sort of thing. Great. I think, and I think I can answer this, but I'm curious what you'd say. What are the biggest skills gaps that, you know, if you could go and bring in uh, 50 people into your shop right now, what, would you, what, what skills would you bring in? Yeah, I, I don't, I, you know, there's, there's a lot out there. You know, the one that I've been focused on a lot lately is um, systems engineers. I mean, they are a commodity. Uh, so this year I offered um, for two people, I would fully fund their master's degree education. Uh, they're going to owe me some time, right? That's fair. And they're back. Well, if they give a year, they owe me two. And that's kind of the plan. That's fair, right? I mean, I went to the Naval Postgraduate School, and that was the obligation there. So I really want to get more systems engineers on my staff that we can have that higher skill set imbued in the organization. So right now, I don't want a lot of them, but I need some of them to bring that in. I also need some modern talent when you start talking about migration to the cloud. We talked a lot about cloud factory. I need people who have expertise in moving people from zero to 100. I've got to have that ability. Also on the cybersecurity side, those, are, those people have the highest demand signal out in the industry. How do I make sure I've got the right cybersecurity experts, right? I mean, think about the problems that I have to solve in cybersecurity, right? And if I constantly have people running out to industry after I get them a clearance, after I give them some experience and training, that's a drain, and I've got to solve that problem. So I'd say those are probably the three areas that I'm most concerned about, systems engineers, experts in the cloud, and my cybersecurity specialists. John, uh, you've, you've touched on this throughout the, the conversation, but I'd like to get a finer point. How are you leveraging partnerships whether, whether within government or external to government, like Spade or anything like this, and collaboration to improve operations and allow you to achieve program results? So we, we, I collaborate with a lot of people. You know, one of the things that you learn coming up through the ranks is relationships are everything. So um, I work very closely with uh, the DOJ CIO, Joe Klimovich. We, if we need something, we go back and forth. Same thing across the components. If we need something, we'll help out the other guy. But it isn't that just that. I leverage a lot of my DOD connections. Uh, I've reached out several times to DOD CIO for some help with issues that only they could provide help on. So, and it goes both ways. If they need help, we're going to step up and help them. So collaboration is very important, but it's it's more important to have built in the relationships and understanding of what everyone does so you know who you could reach out to and what they can help you with. Because look at the lone wolf theory doesn't work. Uh, IT is, is a team sport more than any other sport out there. You can't go it alone. So you have to 
you have to be humble and realize you can't and then build the relationships and understand where you can go. And, you know, if you look at game theory, um, trust is built on probability of defection, right? You want people to understand that, hey, when the time gets tough, I'm not going to defect. I'm in there with you. So building that trust that people know they can rely upon you leads to collaboration and greater success. You know, John, given your perspective, uh, your time at DOD, before that the Navy, now at DHS, how has the role of the federal CIO uh, within the agencies, how has it changed? And what makes one, what characteristics make one a successful CIO? So I've done three CIO jobs. They're all dramatically different, right? So the Department of Navy CIO, uh, very policy-focused. It's an enterprise perspective, not a lot of uh, execution. Uh, As the acting DOD CIO, uh, you have a lot of policy, uh, but you have a lot of overarching work that you need to do with the, with the services pulling them together. You're very involved in spectrum. You're very involved in military satellite communications and nuclear command control and communications. Shifting over to the CIO at DHS, it's a very IT mobility-focused organization where the priority is on execution and getting the right things out there. So three very different CIO jobs, right? But, you know, when you look across the, the variances between us, the one thing that's consistent is, like I said in the previous question, it's like, can you build relationships? Can you understand the other person's problems? And are you going to help them get through those problems? So when you think about the characteristics of a CIO, if you want to drive change, you've got to have the ability for people to trust you. You've got to have established relationships. So when I look at those three jobs, that, that's the one characteristic that stands out. So uh, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Just do it. It's, it's wonderfully rewarding. You will get back more from doing that than you will from anything else. It's hard. You've got to come into it with the realization that it is not going to be the easiest thing you've ever done. But it's really worthwhile. Well, John, thank you uh, for taking some time out of your uh, busy schedule here at Spade in the Netherlands. And uh, uh, I know Don and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to our country. Thank you. I appreciate it. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade interview series, with my guest, Dr. John Zingardi, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. My co-host from IBM was Don Van Hagen. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on exploring the intersection of government, technology, and leadership. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. is the Port of Rotterdam pursuing its digital transformation strategy? What exactly is a digital twin? How can the use of digital twins be applied to other government agencies and mission areas? Michael Keegan explores these questions and more with Erwin Raidmaker, Program Manager with the Port of Rotterdam Authority, and his co-host, Sriram Visvanthanen, IBM Global Managing Director for Government, Healthcare, and Life Sciences from the Spade Conference for an insightful and in-depth discussion. The Business of Government Hour every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.